Well, hey, good morning, Community Alliance Church. Thank you. Good morning, online audience. So glad you're tuning in with us. If you're listening Sunday morning, glad to have you live. If you're catching up with us later in the week, we're glad you're taking that time out of your week to be here and to listen in on what God has to say this morning. Been really looking forward to this all week long as we dive back into the series, Jesus is Greater Than. And to set up where we're going this morning, I actually want to tell a, a little bit of a vulnerable story to, to you guys, something from my own life. Um, a, a story about really what, one of my worst moments as a parent. So if you know me at all, you might know I have two sons. Easton is almost 10. Ashton is almost 8 years old. And about three years ago, uh, we had this one day where we were hanging out. I had the boys. I was on daddy duty because my wife was out of town somewhere for work. And we spent the whole day at Idlewild that day. If you've ever been in Idlewild, it could be a long day to go as a dad with two kids. And then it rained. We were on the spider. It's starting to rain. We make the mad dash for the car, get soaking wet, that whole thing. Finally get the kids home in the evening. Everybody's tired, a tiny bit cranky. And the, the laptop computer at home, it's not working. I, I needed to do something on the computer, and it's giving me blue screens of death. It's not working. And if you read the Bible, you might remember Paul talking about this idea that we don't battle against flesh and blood. Uh, I, and he's talking about how there's spiritual forces at work in our lives. I would also say we don't battle against keyboards and screens sometimes, because computers, did you know that they can be demon-possessed? Um, it's in the Bible. You should read it. So... Now, I'm, I'm there, and you've been there, right? You're just getting, I'm getting frustrated. And my son, who was seven at the time, he's trying to work on some Lego set. And I'm trying to fight with this computer, and he keeps coming to me saying, Dad, Dad, I need your help. I, I can't figure out how to do this. And I, I'm saying, son, just give me a minute. I got I to gotta take care of this problem first, and I'll help you. A few more minutes of unsuccessful troubleshooting go by. Dad, Dad, this piece won't come apart. Dad, can you help me? But I got I to gotta take care. I got to get this fixed. A few more minutes go by. Dad, Dad, when are you going to be done? Are you almost done yet? And, and you kind of know where the story is going, don't you? Eventually he came and he asked too many times. And I let my frustration get the best of me. And suddenly, next thing I know, there I am, 37-year-old man, just screaming at this 7-year-old little boy. And I don't remember what I said exactly, but I'm sure it was something along the lines of, why can't you just leave me alone for five minutes? Do I have to do everything for you? If it's too hard, just don't do the stupid thing. And then I went back to whatever I was trying to fix, and I don't even remember what was wrong. But what I do remember is what I heard next. <laughs> and I pick my head up and I look, and there's my little boy sitting in his little boy chair with his head down. And I asked the stupidest question in history. Why are you crying? I mean, what did I think he was going to say? Because I, I found out Abe Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, Dad. <laughs> Just found that out. No, he said, because I don't like it when you scream at me. And the next thing you know, there I am crying. I didn't care about the computer anymore. I was so ashamed. Because I loved that little boy so much that I would have given my life to stop anyone else in the world from hurting him, how could I do something that hurt him so badly? And I knew the answer. The answer was, despite the fact that I love my son, and despite the fact that I love Jesus, and I wanted to model what Jesus is like to my son, I have a person inside of me that I have to battle against every single day. 
And then when I lose that battle, that person comes out in ways that I am not proud of. And I tell this story because I'm wondering, do you have that person inside of you? Sometimes you have that moment that it just, where did that come from? Or, or maybe you feel like you battle a person inside of you that leads you into some kind of sin that you fight over and over again. You know it's a problem, but you just can't overcome it. Or maybe that person inside you, just as soon as you get, you get on top of one issue in your life, some other issue pops up, and now you've got to deal with that. So the reality is, Scripture tells us that we all have a person inside of us that we have to battle against. And today in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to see the good news about that battle, is that Jesus is greater than the person inside you. In Colossians chapter 3, in verses 5 through 10, which, which is where we're going to be today, we're going to see that Jesus is greater than the person inside you. And Paul's going to show us how we can begin to have victory over that person. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Pull out a mobile device. You can follow along on the screen. We're going to read the verses in their entirety first. And then throughout the message, we're going to go back and we're going to be pulling out some of the ideas that Paul is communicating here. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, we find it written, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. You might have noticed Paul begins to rattle off a lot of different sins. He's actually using this ancient writing technique called a vice list. Which a vice list is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's a list of these things to sort of do an introspective look into your life. It's a bit of what I would call a spiritual MD for the ancient, or web MD for the ancient world. You ever like get the rash and you're like, is this ovular or round? And would you call this very red, mildly red? And you go on to web MD and you're like, am I dying or not? This is Paul, an ancient writer's way of saying, here's some symptoms to look in your, life, and you, in your life and you can find out if you're a virtuous or an evil person. And Paul includes a lot of the things that we really expect to be on a list like this, sexual morality, malice, slander, all of this bad stuff. So the readers that he was writing to, that wouldn't have really surprised them very much. Those were some new ideas. But then he includes some things on his list that would have stuck out like a cheeseburger on a Chick-fil-A menu. They don't really belong on this list. And whenever scripture does things that kind of surprise you, that's when you really need to pay attention. So here are some of the things that Paul includes on his list. He adds to this list of all these normal sins, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. You have taken off your old self. And Paul is saying, hey, we all have a list. We all have these things in our lives. But have you ever wondered whether your anger or your lust or your foul mouth isn't really your problem? Have you ever asked yourself, where do these issues in your life really 
come from? What is behind them? See, Paul is saying that beneath these issues in our lives, something else is driving them. Something he calls the earthly nature or the old self. We could kind of put it this way, that the surface sins in our lives stem from a source problem. Paul is saying that the surface sins, the things in our lives that sort of come out of us, they stem from a source problem. When my wife and I first bought a house in 2012, one of the things that really sold me on the house was the backyard. Uh, I was looking out at the backyard when we were looking at the house to see if we were going to buy it or not, and I could just envision like a fire pit over here, maybe a swing set over there, playing football with my sons. I had all these grand visions of what it could be, which led to us wanting the house. What I did not envision was what I actually saw once we moved into the house. Remember one morning waking up and looking out the window, and suddenly overnight, all over the yard, had popped up these little mounds of fresh dirt. All over the place. Little volcanoes. I get out my rake, and oh, what in the world is this? I rake them all down. That's good. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. Sure enough, the next day I go out and look, there's more little dirt mounds all over the yard. Well, you probably already know what I had to learn. Those little dirt mounds were molehills. Some molehills were all over my yard. What I knew, though, was that I didn't have a molehill problem. I had a mole problem. There was a little critter who had made a nice little home in my backyard, and because of him working underneath the surface, molehills were popping out all over the place. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, in your life, you might look out and you might see molehills of sin, but underneath that, there's a source that can be hidden that's causing your problem. And he uses words like earthly nature and the life you once lived and your old self to describe that beneath the surface problem. He's saying, you have a self problem. You have a you problem. See, even though Jesus moved into your life when you gave your life to him, there was another person already living in your life that now you have conflict with because Jesus is vying to live there and that person who already was living there is vying to live there. There's a pastor in the 18th century, his name is William Law. He described it this way. He described it by saying, self is the root and the tree, and the branches of all the evils of our fallen state. He gives us this word picture that we can work with. In other words, Paul, as well as Mr. Law, are saying this. He's saying, if you look at your life, and you consider your life kind of like a tree, we have the fruit. These are kind of the sins that are evident, right? Things that just pop out of our life. Immorality, lust, anger, bad language. We all have a big list. He said, but those are just the things that you see. And kind of like fruit on a tree, whenever you take them off, well, then just more fruit grows. And kind of like fruit on a tree, they're actually produced by some other unseen things that are taking place in the trunk of the tree and in the roots. Now, most people who write about this idea will say that, you know what, beneath the, the fruit at the top 
between that and the roots, there's what you could call a tree issue. There's some other deeper things in our lives, sometimes people call them lies, sometimes people call them idols or sources that drive the fruit. If this actually rings a bell with you and you want to learn more, there's some books at the end of your sermon notes that give you some references. But a lot of times we can refer to these things as maybe, maybe beneath the fruit on your tree you have a, a comfort issue, a comfort idol. You, you're driven a lot by your need to be free of pain or free of threat, or you might have an approval issue. When you look at the things in your life that are fruit, they're really driven by your need to have others think well of you. You could have a control issue, which is really what's driving outwardly this inward need to have the outcomes that you want, or even a performance issue, saying, I have to do everything perfectly, or I have to get the results that I want. But beneath all of that, Paul is saying, what drives your fruit, what drives your tree is a root, and that root is self. Even when we talked about these tree issues like comfort and approval, you hear these words of me and my and I. And Paul is saying that everything in our lives, from the tree to the fruit, is driven out of a sinful self. The self is the problem, it all comes back to that person inside of you that Jesus Christ is trying to move out of your life. So how does this flesh out? Let me give you a couple examples. Oops, I, I hit the button. I wasn't supposed to. Go back one, please. Thank you. If, we, if you look at this, okay, so like my son, that issue that I had, I kind of lash out in anger. What was driving that? Well, really, it, it was my comfort idol right? Like, I didn't want to have frustration that night. I didn't want to deal with it. I wanted to have a peaceful night, and I'm having this frustration, and he was adding to it, so I lashed out. But what was driving my need for comfort was my selfishness. I wanted what I wanted more than I wanted what was best for him. Or let's say you have a foul mouth. You just spew swear words all the time. Your fruit might be filthy language, but it could be actually be coming maybe from a control issue. It's how you take control to get what you really want or the outcomes that you want. So whenever the person puts the pickle on your Big Mac, even though you told that poor 16-year-old that you don't want a pickle, you get to the window and you cuss them out, right? It's because you have a control issue because really you care more about your pickle than you care about how you treat that person. And you pull away and they look out the window and they see the WWJD sticker on the back of your car. But you cared more about yourself than representing what Jesus did, how Jesus would treat them. Or, or maybe let's say that you, you have a greed issue, okay? It's an inappropriate desire for more. That issue can actually drive from different places in the tree. It could come from um, a control place where you, maybe you grew up poor and you saw all the pain that that caused in your family's life. So as you grew up, you said, you know what? I'm going to have enough possessions that I'll never have to relive the arguments that my parents had. I'll never have to relive those discomforts or those pains. I'm going to control the outcome because that's what's driving your greed. But the bottom line is you trust you to provide more for you than you trust God to provide for you. But greed can also come maybe from a performance idol or performance thing in your life where you're saying, I've got to be better than everyone else. And stuff is an easy way to measure it. So the more stuff I have, the better I am because... In yourself, you believe that you determine your worth more than God. So if you look at the fruit or the sin list in your life, you can usually trace it back through the tree to the self. Now, you know what the problem is, though? Most of us spend all of our time 
dealing with the fruit in our lives without ever realizing, realizing where it actually comes from. And that, that's what Paul is trying to get us to realize. It's kind of like that mole in my yard. If I wanted to get rid of the mole, I didn't go watch YouTube videos on how to rake molehills. And I didn't go and get the best rake money could buy, and I didn't lift weights so I could just rake all day long. If I wanted to deal with the molehills in my yard, I didn't have to become a mole raker. I needed to become a mole killer. And so I certainly tried. I bought this giant trap. Actually, I had it in my shed for 10 years, and I threw it away three weeks ago thinking, I'll never need this again. And uh, I needed it for a sermon illustration. It was this trap that would, like, come down, and I, it would take the mole, and it, I wouldn't even describe what it would do to the mole. It wasn't good. Somebody told me, hey, moles don't like sweet soil. So I bought, like, 1,000 pounds of pelletized lime and spread it all over my yard to sweeten the soil. Somebody told me that Caddyshack was about this guy who was out to get a gopher. And I was like... That's kind of like a mole. Maybe I should watch that to get some ideas. I became obsessed with mole killing. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, look around your life. What, what are the issues that just keep springing up? What, what's, your, what's your mole hill? Are you just exhausted from dealing with it? Or, or, or are you just covered in dirt from all the raking? Maybe you've just resigned yourself. You know, that's just who I am. I'm going to have to look at that the rest of my life. And Paul's saying, if you want to deal with the molehills that keep popping up, the fruit on the surface of your life, you have one recourse, and it's this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Quit being a molehill raker. Start being a mole killer. Usually here we'll use the New International Version of Scripture, but every once in a while I look back at the King James Version, and you just find some some very cool words from the 1600s. The King James Version uses this word when translating this verse. It says, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. I can just imagine the late Sean Connery with his accent saying, mortify. I can't even do it, but in your head, like such a cool word. And, and, and today it kind of means like extreme embarrassment. Like you, oh, I could just die, I was mortified or Actually, some people use it to say, okay, when you actually inflict pain on your body to deal with sin, which that's really not what Scripture teaches at all. Mortify in the 1600s just meant to kill or destroy. And, and Scripture's saying here that you have this person inside of you that is sinful, and whenever you let that person just reign in your life, it's going to continue to produce these outward sin. But then, if you're a Christian, you gave your life to Jesus Christ, and you said, Jesus, come and live inside of me, which means that Colossians 3 verse 10 says that you put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. It's saying that now it's intended that you stop looking like you, and the new self is to look everything like Jesus. But you have to let Jesus deal with the old self. Paul uses another really, really strong word writing in another letter when he says that he was crucified with Christ and no longer lives, but Christ lives in me. He said, I have worked to crucify this person inside of me. 
What a strong word, but he's saying, I have a legal right to get rid of this person because of the crucifixion of Jesus, and I participate in Jesus' crucifixion by doing what happened to his physical body on that cross to this sinful person inside of me. He continues in Galatians 5 using it and says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Saying that we have these passions and desires that continue to produce fruit sins outside of us, but we have to crucify the flesh or the person inside of us. Just like a dead person doesn't have hunger anymore and doesn't have thirst anymore, he's saying when you deal with the self, when you let Christ come in and crucify the self, then the outward desires are going to start going away because you dealt with the root problem. Crucifixion was a specialized form of killing. And I think Paul's teaching could be summarized as specialized in old self-killing instead of new sin-killing. Quit picking fruit off the tree and start digging the root out of your life. Let me give you an example that might help you understand this. You might have heard of something in law called castle doctrine. You know what castle doctrine is? Castle doctrine is this American law, but it's based on an old English law, which basically said that your home is your castle, and you have a right to defend it. So in American law, it's interpreted, and please, this is not legal advice. I'm a pastor. I'm not qualified to do that. Go to LegalZoom.com. <laughs> but American law interprets it saying that basically, if someone intrudes illegally in your home, you have the legal right to use whatever force necessary, including deadly force, to stop that threat to your house. The, the states that interpret it most broadly would say that when someone is illegally intruding in your home, you should presume that they have violent intents towards you, and you should presume that you are in imminent danger and at risk for harm, and that you should use whatever force necessary to stop that. As we might say in Western PA, shoot first and ask questions later. And I'm not saying that that's what Jesus says to do in your home. You have to wrestle through the morality of that. But I do think that's what Paul is saying to do in yourself. Seeing that, that old self that Christ is trying to rid you of intends you harm. And you have to use whatever force necessary, deadly force, to get rid of it. See, the problem is sometimes in my life, maybe in your life, I try to work out a cohabitation arrangement. I try to figure out how I can get Jesus and the old sinful self living together inside of me. But the, usually the way that that goes is I tell Jesus, hey, you can sleep on the couch and there's a box of cornflakes in the cupboard, but here, self, you can have the master bedroom and let me make you an omelet for breakfast in bed. See, these, these two aspects, Jesus trying to live in me and the old self in me, neither one is willing to live with the other. The old self is always trying to push Jesus out, and Jesus says, I came, I was crucified on a cross, so the old self inside of you can be crucified. So if you want to deal with yourself, you've got to give yourself to me and let me come into you. So how does this work in our lives? Right? This idea of crucifixion. For the sake of time, we're going to go through a, a list pretty quickly, but I would call it the five C's of crucifixion. It's on the back of your bulletin, and we're going to move kind of fast, but uh, I've also given you some other books at the back. If you are interested in this and you're like, 
hey, that really held true for me. You can look at some of those, and they'll, they'll give you a little bit more information. Five C's of crucifixion. The first one is Christ. Christ. See, you can't do this by yourself. It's not a solo endeavor. Paul is not writing self-help material here in Colossians. He's actually writing Christ-help material. He's saying that you have to let Christ do this in you. Crucifixion actually gives us a good picture. Uh, if somebody can actually nail one hand to the cross, they can't get the other hand nailed by themselves, can they? We need Jesus to do this for us, which is why the second C is conceit. Quit trying to do it on your own. Surrender. Wave the white flag. You got you into this mess, but you're not going to get you out. Romans chapter 12 says to present our bodies a living sacrifice to Jesus, which means that we turn ourselves over to him. We surrender and acknowledge that Jesus needs to come and work in our lives, not us try to be better in our lives. Because we can't do it by ourselves, we have to do it in community. We have to do it in relationship with others. Now, I could give you Bible verses, and I could talk to you about how Jesus was in, the communi in community with the Trinity, with, the, with God, and with the Holy Spirit. I think the best way to explain this, though, is maybe you've realized this about yourself. I've realized this about myself. I've become smart enough to realize that I am not smart enough to see myself in myself. I just don't see it. It's like B.O. Like, I come back from a run, and I walk in the house, and I don't smell me, but my kids walk in the kitchen, and they about pass out on the floor. I don't smell anything, but man, can they smell it. We can't smell our selfishness sometimes, because we've just been immersed in our horrible aroma of ourselves. But the other people in our lives, oh, they can smell you. The first person you got to go to is God, and the master of this, the goat, was King David. I mean, if you want to know how to talk to God about yourself, just open up the, the Bible to Psalm 139 and still this prayer. David writes this. He says, search me, God, and know my heart. He's saying, God, look past all the fruit and all the surface. Get to the root. Get to the person living in my heart and test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Get before God. And say, God, you just got to speak to me. Show me. Show me where I'm falling short. And then, after you talk to God, talk to the people in your life. Wouldn't the scariest question you can imagine be going to your spouse and saying, how do you feel like I put myself before you and our children? You might want to cap it at, like, okay, give me at most three. Or go to your kids and say, how do you feel like dad cares more about himself than you guys? Go to your siblings. They'll be honest. They've been waiting for you to ask this question for 40 years. How am I self-centered? The people you work with, ask them that question. If you make it safe enough, they will tell you things about yourself that you've never known. But don't bite their heads off. Be ready, because when they tell you something that hurts... That person inside of you is going to be coming out for you. The next C is this, confession. When you find out something about yourself, you've got to confess it. And confession isn't, God, I'm sorry, I'll try harder next time. Confession is saying, this is wrong. 
I hate this. God, this is what put Jesus on the cross. Will you forgive me for this? And then analyze it. Go to that tree and say, where's this coming from? What's driving this? Have that conversation with the Lord and ask him to empower you as you battle against it. And if you find out that you have done something to hurt someone else, go and ask their forgiveness as well. As I was working through this, I realized that there's one thing that we can model to each other and that parents, we can model to our children that Jesus cannot model for us. Asking forgiveness. Jesus never had to ask for forgiveness. So we actually can't look at him for our example because he was perfect. He never did anything he had to ask for forgiveness for. But parents, we can go to our children and ask forgiveness. That night that I yelled at my son, we sat on the steps and I told him how wrong I was and asked for his forgiveness. I can't always show my kids how to live perfectly. But I do have the opportunity to show them what it means to confess sin and ask for forgiveness and let them see me working through that. The final thing is this. It's continual. It's continual. If you got frustrated about how hard this is, then good, you're trying. You're working through it. When you work through this process of self-crucifixion, letting Jesus replace the old person inside of you with the, himself, you're going to find that it's hard and you have to commit to continuing in it. You might battle that same issue about yourself over and over again, or just when you figure out this thing about yourself, Jesus opens up a different area of your life that he wants to work in. You've got to continue on in it. Paul gives us a good example of how this works, I think, in this passage in Colossians. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, You have taken off your old self with its practices. The word here for taken off has a range of meaning that can also include like taking off clothing. Like at the end of the day, after you've sweated and worked and lived in your clothing and it's now dirty, you take it off because it's soiled and you put on some new clean clothing. Paul is saying it's a daily, daily process of taking off that old self and putting on the clothing of Christ. When you think about clothing, I am wearing clothing right now, and I have arms and legs, and my clothing is moving around and taking steps. My, but what is giving it form? It's, it's the body underneath it, right? My body is what gives my clothing form. If my body just disappeared, then my clothing would fall down to the floor, and it would have no life and no form anymore. I think that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, if you get rid of the self, that person inside the outer clothing of your sin, well, your sin's not going to have life. It's not going to have form anymore. You're taking away the source of its movement, the source of its life. That image takes on more powerful meaning, I think, when we realize that Jesus was our example for this. If you think back to the day that Jesus was killed, his body was wrapped in some clothing. I would call those his death clothes, and he was placed in a tomb. And a couple days later, this rumor starts circulating around town that his body wasn't in that tomb anymore. So a couple of his buddies go run into the tomb to find out if it's true. 
John tells us the story in chapter 20 of his gospel. He says, Simon Peter comes along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. They walk into the tomb and they see the death clothes, but there's no body there. See, Jesus' body had taken all of our sin and all of our evil and all of our hideousness upon it and paid the price for those sins on the cross. Then his body, with all that death and that sin, was wrapped in clothing and placed in a tomb. But then his body was gone, just as our sins were gone, and those death clothes didn't have form anymore because he had overcome our sins with his body, through himself. So he could do the same thing in our lives. So he could take the self out of us so the clothing of our sin wouldn't have form or wouldn't have life anymore. Today we're going to do something very special as a congregation. Regularly we celebrate what we call communion. It's our remembrance of what Christ did in his body but it also gives us an occasion to remember what he wants us to do in us. When you came in, you might have gotten one of these little juice packets with a wafer on top. In a moment, we we're going to tear them open. If you did already, I hear it happen, and it's okay. This isn't your first rodeo. But before we do that, I, I want to ask you to bow your heads and have a moment with Jesus. Think about your life. Is there something in your life right now that is standing between you and Jesus? Maybe it's a a sin, a fruit on the tree that drives back to some kind of trunk idol that all goes back to the sinful self inside of you. Practice one of those seas of crucifixion and confess to Jesus that sin. Ask him for his forgiveness. As you're doing that, I just want to imagine you to imagine that sin being placed upon the body of Jesus on the cross. And use your imagination to, to remember his body raising again, leaving his death clothes behind in an empty tomb. He's removing that sin from your life. And he wants to do that inside of you over and over again as you look more and more like him and less and less like you. You can raise your heads now, and now it is appropriate to tear off that top layer. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he he took some bread as well, and he told his disciples that this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. As often as you do this, remember what I did for you. Let's eat that bread together, remembering Jesus' body killed for us. And then the next layer is the juice, and you can peel back that layer as well. At that same supper, Jesus took a cup of wine. He said, this this is my blood. This represents the blood that I'm going to spill to cover your sins. So as often as you celebrate this, remember my blood that's been shed for forgiveness of your sins. Let's, Let's remember what he's done for us together. Jesus, 
we thank you, what you for what you did on the cross. We thank you that every time we take this meal together, we remember that because of what you did, we can have a relationship with God and we're promised an eternity with you. But more than that, we thank you not just for what this represents for our eternity, we thank you for what this represents for our lives. That the old person inside of us that rears his or her ugly head over and over again, God, that we have, we have victory over that person through Jesus. And may this help us to remember that through Jesus' crucifixion, through his body and his blood shed for us, we can have that same victory over ourselves and the sins in our lives. God, help us as we leave this place to live in that victory and to demonstrate that victory to all those whose lives we influence around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you all so much for celebrating communion with us as well as for worshiping with us. I invite you to join us again next Sunday. Until then, God bless you. Have a wonderful week.